This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We spend around one third of our lives sleeping or trying to get to sleep, yet few of us really understand what happens in that mysterious realm beyond our waking hours. With 24-7 lifestyles and a proliferation of portable digital devices at our disposal, at disposal, it's arguably harder than ever to main healthy, maintain healthy sleeping patterns. According to the Sleep Health Foundation, between 33 and 45% of Australians do not receive enough quality sleep on any given night. Writer Michael McGurr has done a lot of thinking about this, stemming from his own experience of severe sleep apnea. In 2009, he published a book all about sleep, not just why we need it and how to get more of it, but also how it's been mythologised and grappled with by key thinkers throughout history. He's just recently put out a new updated version of this text, text called Snooze, The Lost Art of Sleep. And to talk more about it, we have Michael here in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Hello, it's nice to be here. And, um, you know, a casualty of our 24-7 lifestyle, as um, Dylan described it, is sleep. And uh, one of my favourite articles in recent times has been the eight things successful people have done before breakfast because they all get up at 4am and, you know, have all these masses amount of time before they get to work. What have you done this morning before breakfast, Michael? I'm, emba- I'm, I'm embarrassed by that question because I've done very little except get here. The, uh, you know, the world is divided, in my opinion, between those for whom bed is a place to get into and those for whom bed is a place to get out of, you know. And I'm definitely a person for whom bed's the end of the day not and the celebration of the end of the day, you know, the achievement of rest and the, the uh, wonderful feeling it is of pulling that doona over your head and good night world. And there are others who just bounce out with a list of stuff to do and... I find that a bit alienating in a way. <laughs> I think we come out of our cave slowly and tentatively, a little confused and a little unsure about what this day is going to hold. I begin to face the day when I'm under the shower. The beauty of planning the day under the shower is you can't make lists in there. I've tried taking the pen and pad under the shower, but it gets too wet. You've got to write it in the steam on the, on the glass and then it disappears. Yeah. <laughs> You've given me an idea there. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, just staying with that, what, what is it, do you think, um, that having little sleep is something to be celebrated for some? A lot of people are proud of the fact they only need four or five hours a night. There's an entire machismo about this. You should see the amount of commentary on the fact, not just on what Donald Trump tweets, but on the time that he tweets. He sends out these tweets at two or three o'clock in the morning and sort of like a signal to the world, you know, I'm still up, guys. Whereas the best thing he could probably do for the world, well, uh, that could be a long list, but one of the things he could do for the world is to spend more time in bed. Um, All the research would suggest that if you've been awake for 28 hours, your cognitive capacity is worse than if you have a blood alcohol level of 0.08. So if somebody has not slept and they're driving a car, they're as culpable as somebody who's been drinking and driving. And yet, for some reason or other, we associate sleeplessness with leadership and vision. Whereas actually, it's the opposite, that leadership and vision in particular comes out of a kind of rest, what even you might call a contemplation, you know, a kind of a fresher place. The philosopher Plato, uh, in 
one of his many commentaries on the way the world should be governed, some of which were crazy and some of which were terrific, thought that the city should be governed by a council of philosophers who met at dawn before they could get tired when they were likely to have good ideas. You know, he also thought that the prison, they should meet outside the prison in the hope that the prisoners would be able to overhear them and reform their ways. So that was, <laughs> but that must have had very thin walls. But no, it's, it's actually, it's actually a, one of the, uh, issues I'm dealing with in this book is the fact that we live in a culture of exhaustion. And in fact, I think one of the way people, one of the reasons I believe people jump on extreme political solutions at the moment is that they're too tired to think things through. So this is part of the Trump phenomenon, it's part of the Brexit phenomenon, then it's part of the swings the other way to that guy in mm. France. What's his name? Macron? Um, Doesn't he sleep either? I haven't I haven't <laughs> bothered to find out. It's an interesting theory, isn't it? <laughs> but, but people, there's a, there's a tiredness in this and that Conversation becomes an exchange of cliches and platitudes because people are too tired to find their own words. People are afraid of gaps, silences, afraid of time, you know, plonking down without much to do. Well, well it occurred to me when reading your book, Michael, I mean, it is called Snooze, The Lost Art of Sleep. And we don't commonly think of sleep as an art. It's something we do because we need to do it. And when we don't get enough of it, we're tired and perhaps cranky and agitated. But it's something that a lot of us don't think a lot about, probably because we don't really realise we're doing it when we do it. Should we be investing more in, in perfecting the art of sleep, as uh, you call it? Well, I call it an art because it is the most creative thing we do. And why is it creative? It's the one time in the day when your ego gets out of the road and the rest of you can do important stuff. What does that mean? All the healing in your body takes place when you're asleep. If you've got younger kids, they, or kids of any age really, all their growth takes place when they're asleep. Memory consolidation takes place when they're asleep. If kids are learning language, that is laid down in the brain when they're asleep. You name it. Virtually anything we do that's creative happens not just because of our sleep, but actually because of what the mind can do in your sleep when you actually surrender control of it. And there's an awful lot to think about in this. But so that's why I call it an art. But also sleep is a, a learnt behavior, you know, that kids have to be taught it. And sometimes it's very hard for kids to learn it. And um, and then even as we're going through life, there's a quite a high level of awareness about learning appropriate sleep behavior. I'm a school teacher. There's constant reinforcement about this issue of screens in the hour before bedtime because of the light that comes from the screen, the way it releases cortisol, the way it disturbs the cycle of melatonin, which should be starting to be released at nine o'clock. And at this night. is quite well known now that using screens within about an hour of, of attempting to go to sleep is not good for us. And that's adults as well as children, isn't it? Look, I'm quite a crusader on this point. You know, the difference between reading a book in bed and reading a screen in bed, if you're reading a book, such as this very fine book that I have written. <laughs> <laughs> Best since Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I only wish it was somebody else who said that, not me. <laughs> but, you know, if you're reading a book in bed, you're looking at black type. When you look at black, your brain releases melatonin. It's relaxing. 
If you are reading the same book on a Kindle or a Slate or something like that, your eye is seeing light. When your eye sees light, you release cortisol, which is the stress hormone, which would be released if you're about to get hit by a car, for example, in enormous rush of it. So reading on a Slate, your brain finds inherently stressful compared to reading black type, which your brain finds inherently restful. It's a huge difference. I don't think kids should be using screens in the classroom until they have learnt to read because if they are learning from screens, they are learning that reading is an innately stressful experience. I reckon that's bad. Whereas, in fact, it should be it should be something quite different. This doesn't answer your question at all, does it? Sorry. No, but I, I suppose I was just coming to the research because uh, we hear um, new research all the time about about sleep and how it can be disrupted through technology and using phones right up until you turn the lights out, sort of thing. And uh, that's coming back through research that this is not a good thing for us. Oh, absolutely. But there is a lot of awareness about it. And this is one thing between when I first wrote about sleep about eight years ago and now, the big difference is the level of awareness. Yes, there's more drugs, more medications, more treatments, but eight or years ago, people would talk about the importance of exercise and a balanced, balanced diet. These days, people say exercise, a balanced diet and sleep, right? They put it right up there on the the very core things for healthy living. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Michael McGurr all about his uh, brand new or updated edition, I should say, of a previous book he wrote called Snooze, The Lost Art of Sleep. And as I mentioned at the beginning, Michael, this was inspired in part by your own struggle with sleep, with sleeplessness. And it was interesting to read how when you were tested, you found that, or researchers found that you were waking up hundreds of times throughout the night without actually realizing that and that was why you were so tired throughout the day yeah and i'm sure a lot of listeners will relate to this because sleep apnea is um so common actually uh perhaps less common is the fact that when before i discovered i had sleep apnea which is getting on for 20 years ago now um i was falling asleep all the time i used to work as a catholic priest i fell asleep once during one of my own sermons which normally that's the job of the congregation you know they, they they're the ones who are supposed to fall asleep and sometimes when the sermon was too short parents in the congregation would have a go at me because it was too short and they hadn't had enough sleep you know but there was what this one particular occasion in which i said in trick of the trade trying to think of what next so let's just meditate on what i've just said and i just dozed off in the pulpit and I looked up and everybody was laughing and I thought to myself I must have said something funny I wonder what it was but the message is I was also falling asleep at my desk luckily not behind the wheel of a car I did hear of a school once which had a guy driving the bus the school bus who had sleep apnea and he was sort of nodding off behind the wheel which is a which is a really terrifying thing waiting to happen but luckily I was able to um, get a breathing machine which is a relatively simple solution to an extremely difficult and complex problem so yes that's part of my story Mm. and and have you noticed I mean since you were diagnosed with sleep apnea and with the greater understanding around sleep that there is more help for people out there who suffer from these types of ailments yep and um, sleep apnea is extremely common what is 
increasingly the case now is that people have more than one sleep disorder, multiple sleep disorders. For example... Having in, children. <laughs> well... <laughs> It's, that's an interesting one, you know. Sorry, I'm keep going with your train of thought. Because you never, you because I reckon once you've had kids, you never quite sleep the same way again, you know. <laughs> but um, for example, in women, the most common sleep disorder is bruxism or grinding teeth, which is actually a very, um, and in that's one of a number of sleep disorders which is related to a kind of repetitive action, you know, almost like a compulsive thing that you're. There's a tension there and you're grinding of the teeth and so on. People can get plates for that. A simple dental plate make a huge difference. Um, there's restless legs. There's also the whole world of parasomnias, which are increasingly delicate issues in uh, a number of legal cases when people have d- committed crimes and have claimed that they were asleep at the time. There's a subcategory of parasomnias called sexsomnias where people have... Um, even with their partner have done something, you know, well, had sex in the middle of the night and um, if it's been unwelcome, their defence has been, well, I've actually been asleep and I didn't know what I was doing. And courts are now taking this as evidence. They're not always accepting it as as uh, mitigating circumstances, but they're certainly hearing it, you know, because it is a legitimate thing. So, yes... There is certainly lots of help for sleep apnea and pretty effective treatment with these. And it was an Australian, I might say, Colin Sullivan, who invented this solution, which is now used right around the world. And along with cochlea, has become Australia's greatest medical export. But uh, there's another, there's a whole list of medical issues, narcolepsy cataplexy, you name it. Sleep is, I said earlier, sleep is the most creative thing we do, and it can be, but it also has this capacity, like many creative things, to be a place where we betray ourselves. And people who live with narcolepsy, which is terrible, wonder, why does my brain do this to me? It's the last thing I need my brain to be doing. Why does it do it? You know, and it's hard to answer those questions. So why did you update your book, Michael? Um, anything medical moves along very rapidly. I had, since the first book came out until now, I've been uh, working as a school teacher and I have been very concerned about the culture of exhaustion in the lives of young people who are often overstimulated and they are stimulated to the point that they can't really think, absorb, that they just... You know, they just become a bit mushy in the brain because they're so tired. Um, that's been a big concern of mine. And also I got interested, there's a lot of historical characters in this book and I got interested in new ones such as Jonathan Swift and Daniel Defoe and they weren't in it before and um, more about some of the philosophers and so on. So list of reasons. And, and how are you sleeping now? Well, actually... Um, well, I now have the, um, what shall we say, uh, I'm now older than I was when I first wrote this book and the greatest, um, uh, sleepish, I'll be frank, we can, we're among friends here, aren't we? It's getting up in the night to go to the loo, right? I'm now well into my middle years, but again, there's an attitude to this and I read a book by a guy, um, who said that, um, 
uh, who was, I suppose, about my age, late 50s, trying to... Um, he said how horrible it was to have to get up in the night to go to the loo. But he changed that experience for himself by reminding himself every time he got back into bed, that was wonderful. Every return <laughs> to bed was wonderful. And yes... If we take nothing else from that com- this conversation, that's it. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank to you for R. having me. Um, Michael McGurr, uh, a very entertaining read, actually, Snooze, The Lost Art of Sleep, and it will really, you'll get brushed up on your Greek mythology and all sorts of stuff. If I want to go to sleep. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> inspired. Um, it's really good to meet you, and thanks for Thank coming to Thank you so R. much. And the needs-based approach to funding school education has massive support in Australia, but is the so-called Gonski 2.0 approach that passed through the Senate in the early hours of Friday morning what we think it is. If we listen to Labor, the Education Union and well-known public school advocates like Jane Caro, they say we've ended up with a pale imitation of Gonski rather than the deal that'll achieve real equity in education. But on the other side, the Prime Minister says the new funding deal's an historic victory and that the school funding wars should now be over. Gonski 2.0 was also endorsed by its namesake David Gonski himself and has widespread support through um, sort of education funding advocates as well. So someone who speaks from outside the ideological divide, <coughs> excuse me, is Pete Goss from the Grattan Institute. He's got his head around the detail and it's uh, really great to have you in with us, Pete, because I hope you can smooth a, thing, a few things out for us. I suppose my first question is, is it worth having an historic victory if the education funding wars keep raging on? Well, for it to be a historic victory... The funding wars have to slow down and uh, unfortunately, given the way the politics played out, I'm not sure that the funding wars have stopped, which is a shame because I think this was a genuine opportunity where they could do. And why I say that is that for the first time ever, we have a consistent Commonwealth approach to funding all of our schools that takes into account the needs of their students and whether it's a small or remote school. And there are no special deals worth the name. Now, We'll get into maybe, I know some people don't like the way the formula works and that's absolutely fine. That's something that should be debated. Um, but there are no special deals here and the Commonwealth is consistent. Now, there are big questions about what the states are going to do. Um, and also, Labor seems to have locked itself into a position saying what we put in place six years ago is absolutely perfect, nothing could improve it and we're going to go back to that. The world changes, so I find that an odd position. Well, and, and this bill, we should remind listeners, passed with the support of some crossbenchers, but it was opposed by the Greens, by Labor, also by David Linehelm, um, as well as Corey Bernardi. So, I mean, they represent quite diverse constituencies. Do they have, do you think, legitimate concerns around the rollout of Gonski, or, I mean, is it just simply playing politics? So the crossbench is incredibly diverse. There are more uh, there are more senators, not from the major parties, uh, than there ever have been before. Um, so let's go through them one by one. David Lionhelm, when he got the first details of uh, Gonski and realised it wasn't more money, said, actually, the principles are right, I'll support it, but in the last minute deals, more money was put in and that's his big thing, and he walked away. Corey Bernardi argued it's impossible to plan for anything beyond four years, but I think that's code for I don't like the government. They, uh, so they were the two senators that walked away. Um, the Greens, um, as has been reported in the paper, seem to have had an enormous internal argument over this. Now, the leader of the Greens, Richard Di Natale, was in favour. The education spokesperson, Sarah Hanson-Young, was strongly in favour and she was fighting to the end, actually, to improve some of the amendments 
So one of the things that got put in was an independent body to oversee schools funding to build confidence and transparency. The first version that was agreed to didn't have really any teeth and so she sponsored an amendment that did go through that gave that some more teeth. So I think it's pretty clear which side she's on. Something weird happened with the internal machinations of the Greens and I think that we're going to hear more about that. Um, But if that had not been the case, it would have been an almost slam-dunk victory for Gonski. And to have got that with such a diverse range of views on the crossbench, Labor can say for all they want that that this is dirty deals... I interpret it as the Senate doing its job and sponsoring good policy. And, I mean, I, I was reading Jane Caro over the weekend and she's written books on this topic, as you know, and she's a, a big uh, public schools advocate. And what she said she was particularly concerned about was enshrining this 80-20 principle where <clears throat> the federal government funded independent schools to 80% but limits its support of um, public schools to 20%. And she said that this is going to kind of entrench disadvantage rather than, than alleviating it. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that principle so that we can get our heads around it. Absolutely. So for quite a few years, the Commonwealth Government has been the majority funder of non-government schools. Of course, they get fees as well, but of the funds they get from the government, most comes from the Commonwealth. Whereas for public schools, most of the funds come from the states. And that's a historical thing because states are responsible for their uh, for their schools. Now, The way that that was playing out under the previous model was really very messy, that um, most schools, public schools and and non-government schools, were below their funding, and so they needed more money. And there was a question about where would that come from, and Labor said most of that should come from the Commonwealth Government. So over time, the mix of funding for government schools was shifting, with the Commonwealth picking up some more, And the mix of non-government schools was shifting as well, but not quite so much. So let's now focus just on the government schools. That um, in 2017, if we look at the... uh, (coughs) Excuse me. If we look at the uh, target for all government schools and say, how much does the Commonwealth pay? In Victoria, it's 17%. In New South Wales and Queensland, it's also about 17%. That's going to rise to 20%. So that's actually an increase... Um, in the Northern Territory, it's currently 23%. And so that's going to come down and there are people legitimately concerned because the Northern Territory, if there are any special cases in Australia, that's it. But in Western Australia, it's cur- the Commonwealth currently only funds 13% of the target and it's not budging. It wasn't budging under Labor's model because the state had historically funded its money well. And so if you played this out until all schools got to their full target, which would have happened by about 2025, students in Victorian government schools would have been getting 28%, West Australian 13%. It was really messy. If you took the average, Labor was saying, we'll get to about 22% of funding for government and for government schools from the Commonwealth. So the final result is really not very different and that point hasn't been made widely. Um, now Jane's point saying that uh, this locks in the fact that the Commonwealth is only going to fund 20% of uh, government schools. Yeah, I can see that that's a concern, um, but de facto they were going to be locking it in at about 22% under under Labor with no particular mechanism for, for changing it. Um, actually, 
with a consistent Commonwealth approach, if Labour wants to come in and say we're going to offer to pay 25%, then it's easier to get from here to a better position after we've got Gonski 2.0 in place. And I wonder with when we talk about the states, are we going to set up a, a state federal government conflict over funding? Because uh, again, you know, other arguments I've heard is that Victoria are currently of the of the the school resourcing standard that we've now got in place, which we can talk a little bit more about as well. We're not kind of funding right up to eighty percent yet. We're down in the sixties somewhere, yeah. uh, and so that's going to require a whack of money from the state government. If that's not provided, then what happens to the the funding for the students, uh, Pete? So first of all, there has been there have been fights between the federal government and state governments over school funding for a very very long time, and the previous model um, meant the states had an incentive to cry poor and say it, the less that I've put in historically, the more that the Commonwealth will step up and save me, and that's why our, that's why Victoria was on the track to get to the highest percentage from the Commonwealth precisely because. We hadn't funded our schools as well, whereas Western Australia, which had funded its schools very well, got very little from the Commonwealth. So that incentive is really quite perverse. The immediate step is that states can make the argument, but they have no financial incentive to do so because the Commonwealth will say, we said we'll provide 20% of the target. What part of that don't you understand? You know, you're going to get 20% of the target, you figure out the rest. Now, there is a wrinkle, and this is an important one, and it comes because um, many states don't fund their state government schools to the 80% that would top them up to the the full target with with the Commonwealth's 20. Um, And you're right, Victoria is the lowest. And many advocates of government schools, including the union, were very concerned that state government schools would be left behind. I agree. So I suggested a mechanism to provide an extra encouragement The first level of encouragement comes from transparency. If a state chooses not to fund its schools well, it takes it to the ballot box and it's entirely clear that it's responsible. But what I've said is, um, and this seems to be what's been put in place, if states put more in, fine, they still get the full Commonwealth amount, they don't get punished. If they put a little bit less in, that's fine. They know their schools better. The Commonwealth formula might might not be perfect for everyone. But if they fall a long way short... So their their amount wouldn't get the schools up to 95%. Then they are signalling to the Commonwealth, we don't think our schools need that much, because if we did, we'd put it in. At that point, the Commonwealth should proportionally take back some of its money. Um, and what that would mean is if a party in an election was saying, we're not going to fund to that 95%, the opposition party can say... Okay, but you're leaving $50 million of federal money sitting on the table um, wasted. So if it's genuinely cheaper, that's actually not a problem. But if they are just trying to play games, then that will become very, very obvious to the electorate. Pete Goss is with us. He's a school education program director at the Grattan Institute and he's uh, helping us to better understand the Gonski 2.0 package, as it's been called, which is uh, just passed the Senate last week. And I mean, if we go back to, to basics for a moment, Pete, the, the principles underlying the Gonski needs based funding model is that money is directed to schools that need it the most. And I mean, there are many schools and students, of course, the schools and students. And if we look at some of the most disadvantaged schools around the country, particularly in states such as Tasmania and the Northern Territory, will this funding package um, 
allow those schools to receive funds that will actually make a really tangible difference for, for those most disadvantaged schools? Broadly, yes. Um, it depends on a couple of things. Um, first, the states will be getting more money from the Commonwealth for their government schools everywhere except the Northern Territory, so let's park that for a moment. Um, Tasmania won't get as much as they might have done under Labor's previous deal, but the government has been signalling for a long time it wasn't going to do that. So everywhere except the Northern Territory, there will be more money from the Commonwealth flowing into government schools and an increase that is above the rate of inflation, that is above the growth in wages, what, even once you take into account the number of students there. What that means is schools can buy more resources. They can hire more teachers, speech, speech therapists, whatever they think they need. Now, it's up to each state and territory to decide how that money is allocated. And so what we now need is a Gonski within every state to make sure that any of that extra money goes to the schools that need it the most. If that's done, it should make a really big difference to the resources available. And if the schools use those resources well, that should really help outcomes. Northern Territory is a little bit different. They have historic, they have recently had much higher levels of Commonwealth funding, um, and the Commonwealth could not afford to give, be that generous across the, the whole nation. And so there are going to be some tricky adjustments there. Um, and that's going to be an important one to watch. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose, you know, the criticism coming from, from some who want to see public schools get a good deal, uh, and, and get funded properly is that, that states aren't as well equipped to raise taxes as, say, the federal government. So therefore, you know, states like particularly Tasmania might not be able to put the money in. But if we can move on to some of the more details, uh, as you're alluding to there, the devil is always in the detail. And when are we going to start seeing this money flow? And, and when will we know how it's going to flow, Pete? So I think that we know how it's going to flow to the system level, to either the state government or to the Catholic system or for independent schools to each individual school, um, we pretty much we know in principle now what, the, what it's going to look like and it's going to start flowing in 2018. Um, the exact numbers, because there were amendments, the exact numbers are being revised and that probably will get published on the uh, um, what the government called its schools funding online estimator. I'm not sure it's a, the most helpful thing in the world. Um, but there is, I think, actually clarity um, now. It's hard to find the details if you're a parent, and that's where the school's funding estimator might help. What the states will do, which is the next big question, that is going to be played out, I would say, a little bit over the next three to six months, the first round of that, but actually over the next few years because big changes in the way that states fund their schools, which needs to happen, will flow, have to go through to state budgets and so they operate on an annual cycle. Okay, and so uh, and we have COAG meetings, so uh, is this going to play out at the next COAG as well, the way that the states are going to deal with the 80-20 split? I suspect not. I think that the states will still be making noise saying we kind of liked how things were back in the past and the Commonwealth Government will say, well, we're now in the present. Um I think the Commonwealth Government will be starting to make the argument, it's now over to you. We're being completely consistent. You now need to rebalance your funding in the most sensible way possible. But I don't suspect that the Commonwealth will be trying, telling the states exactly what to do. In fact, one of the big principles behind Gonski 2.0 
was that the state should have flexibility in their own funding. And I say it with my uh, what's called the ratchet mechanism, within reason. You can't be too much of a cheapskate. And so we, as um, you know, if you're a parent, you've got kids at school in Victoria, we need to have a look at whether that uh, the funding percentage is going to shift from about 66% up towards 80% if we want to start seeing more funds flow to our schools. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> it will increase by three percentage points over time from the Commonwealth Government, but the big move would have to come from the State Government. Thank you so much for coming in, Pete. I hope that clears up a few things for people because, you know, in, in the sort of broader news grabs, we do hear for, um, falls and against without the details, so it's really great to have you on. Good to be Catch back. you again soon. Uh, Pete Goss is with the Grattan Institute, and you can head to their website to find out more about the kind of submissions they've made to the Gonski reviews over time, and there's some interesting stuff in there. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.